Hi, this is David Yaz of the Boston Podcast Network. We hope you are staying safe, sound, and sane as this year continues to drag on, and we do all that we have to do to get through this pandemic. Well, how about this? If you want to be on a Zoom call that isn't dreadfully boring, please join us for Zoomapalooza, an interactive adventure of fun, games, comedy, and who knows what else. Tickets are absolutely free, or hire us for your next office or corporate event. Just visit pod617.com slash Zoom. That's pod617.com slash Zoom. Now enjoy the following production of pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network. I'm John. I'm Paul. I'm George. And I play the drums. From pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network, it's Get Back to the Beatles with Chachi LaPrette and Chachi's co host, Beatles instructor at Suffolk University, David Galan. Well, hello, everybody. It's me, your Beatle host and Beatle pal, Chachi LaPrette. Welcome to Another edition of Get Back to the Beatles on the Boston Podcast Network, pod617.com, or wherever you hear your favorite podcasts. I'm joined uh, by my co-host and dear friend, Beatles instructor, Beatles professor at Suffolk University in Boston. We have David Gallant. Hello, David. How are you? Gotcha. I'm doing great. Uh, Finally, we get to um, uh, emerge out of the darkness and into the light. You know, it's been a while, given the condition of the world, but um, what better way to... um, uh, uh, get ourselves back into life than uh, uh, with our favorite uh, our favorite group. That is correct. It's been a while because of COVID, but we're happy to be back. And there's a bunch of episodes in the in the uh, the list there that you can listen to and binge. But we're very excited to be here. We're brought to you by Subaru of New England uh, sponsor. So very excited excited about today's guest, David. Truly, probably one of the most unique Beatle fan stories that I've come across, and. Uh, I met this fabulous person uh, about 10, 11 years ago when she was on my Breakfast with the Beatles show in Boston, which still runs on the air in three states now, Breakfast with the Beatles in New Hampshire, Maine, and Massachusetts. And we're very, very happy to uh, welcome to our show, Debbie Gendler. Debbie, am I saying your last name correctly? It's Gendler? Gendler. Uh, There you go. Got it. Well, if you were a... um, you were a first-generation Beatle fan. You probably saw uh, this uh, 13-year-old face on TV sitting in the audience uh, at the Ed Sullivan Show, February 9th, 1964. I was home watching it with my family, and I'm a first-generation fan. David, you're a little younger, so you did not see the Ed Sullivan Show live as it happened. Correctly, Correct, Dave? <clears throat> yes, I was, um, I was uh, approximately, let me see, um, I was uh, about six months old, but I always say, Chachi, that I, I, I was probably the, the hippest six month old in the in the room. So um, <clears throat> it was it, it was it was all around me. But yes, I was a little bit too young. But I tell you, um, uh, Debbie is a uh, is is as much a uh, celebrity in my class every semester uh, as the Beatles themselves, because she makes <laughs> that appearance and uh, uh, for the Ed Sullivan broadcast. And of course, Makes a famous appearance as a uh, as an expert within the um, uh, Hard Day's Night documentary, and I will freeze frame that and put the Ed Sullivan show side by side and say, "Hey, this is the same person, folks." And uh, so they're um, uh, they they're kind of amazed that uh, you know someone will carry through that passion in a very from a very young age and then almost professionalize it you know with everything she did as a as a fan club president czar if you will uh and uh so um yeah uh you uh, make an appearance debbie in my class several times every semester for the past 15 years 
Wow, well, look at that. <laughs> well, pretty, yeah, pretty amazing. And uh, so, Deb, uh, your story is so unique. And uh, boy, it goes back to um, where you grew up in New Jersey, right? In New Jersey, little town, little town in New Jersey, and uh, a very sleepy sort of blue collar kind of town. And um, Beatles, you know, came my way out of a fluke. Um, my parents' best friends were in England, and um, they uh, didn't know what to bring me back as a gift, and they had passed a record store. So they went in and they asked, what's the best-selling records you have? And the um, owner or whoever was working there said, we have this new album, Please Please Me. And uh, she said, I'll buy that. So she brought it home and gave it to me. I never even heard it. I just looked at the Beatles pictures and I thought these were four of the cutest, cutest guys I'd ever seen in my <laughs> life. And I love them. And um, I started to play the album for my friends and um, no one really liked them too much. Really? Um, they didn't really see their their uh, uniqueness, really, except for the hair, which a lot of the parents of my friends thought was subversive. And um, so, and this was April, late April, 1963. And inside there was a little insert in the album that said, if you want to join the fan club, why don't you write a letter? Join the fan club. So I said, yeah, I'll, I thought to myself, I'll do that so I could at least be in touch with someone else who liked the Beatles. And that's sort of how it all started. Wow. So you were probably the first uh, teenager in the United States to um, get a Beatles album. You know, maybe around, around the first that actually had an actual album. I will tell you to sort of get to the very end of the story, but right at the beginning, which I think will be of interest to your listeners is that for about the past year and a half, I have been actually working with Andrew Salt, the man who bought the Ed Sullivan shows from the Sullivan family exactly 30 years ago in 1990. And um, I'm helping him with a project with the Ed Sullivan Shows for Universal Music. They've launched a uh, YouTube channel, the, a new, the Ed Sullivan Channel, which for the next upteen numbers of years, they'll be putting on different clips. But it's unbelievable to me that I sit here at my age now and just know that when I was in the audience sitting at the Ed Sullivan Show, on that February 9th, 1964, that 56 years later, I would actually be working, doing something professionally, writing, putting together something on that exact show. So it's really been an interesting career, not just with the Beatles, but with my whole television career that I've really gone full circle. Wow, yeah, because we worked for the same company for a while. I was at CBS Radio for 30-plus years, mm -hmm. and you worked at CBS, and you, you're very successful in your own right. But yeah. certainly, you know, the, the course your life has taken because yeah. of that, you know, they could have brought you back a little trinket like a Big Ben statue or something, but they brought you back. <laughs> yeah, <and> right? <laughs> you know, and that little slip, you know, the little twist there turned yeah. 
and the fact that your dad, uh, it's a pretty amazing story. And do you get sick of telling it? I mean, you've been telling no, it. I, frankly, years. I really haven't spoken about it for a long time because everyone I know knows it. So I don't really talk about it that much. But um, really, um, briefly, um, it was really my dad who helped me through this. He had been in the late 1930s, a improvisational jazz dancer with Martha Graham's original uh, dance troupe in New York City. And he always had this sort of like interest in, you know, alternative kind of interesting kinds of things when things would happen in the entertainment industry. And, um, you know, and with the Beatles, he was a very encouraging parent versus so many of my friends that when I started doing the fan club stuff with the official fan club in New York, Beatles USA Limited, he was always indulgent of me. He'd drive me to places, he'd wave, he'd do all this stuff because he really enjoyed this little foray into, um, you know, just the musical world as it was, you know. So. so it then it, it certainly wasn't a surprise. It, it seemed like that that the the die was cast that you would have had advance word of the uh, of of the booking of their tour, even as limited as it was in early 1964. That you would have tickets for the Ed Sullivan Show. How did that actually come about? Okay. Was it because of your role in the in the fan club before they hit these shores? Is that how that happened? Yes, well, from that letter that I mentioned that I wrote, because I couldn't find any friends to love the Beatles like I did, um, my name must have been put away somewhere as a possibility for one day going to America. I later found out, and this was many years uh, later from um, uh, someone who worked at uh, Brian's lawyer's office, um, Walter Hoffer, who was like his first lawyer in New York um, office, told me that Brian was really worried that there were not going to wasn't going to be enough fan interest in America, and he was he was he was hesitant to even bring the Beatles here to America unless they had a number one record. He knew he could count on people welcoming to the Beatles, the Beatles the way they had been done in, uh, welcomed in, uh, you know, Europe and, uh, you know, Hamburg and, you know, all their other stops that they made. So they kept my name because uh, in very late October, I came home from school. I remember it was like right before Halloween, and uh, my mother said that I had received a telegram from some people in New York that uh, a Mr. Brian Epstein was coming to New York and was looking to meet with people to establish uh, fans and things for the Beatles. And they said to call this phone number on, um, you know, at our uh, convenience. So I, it was a Friday. So on Monday, I went to school, but I had my mother call for me. And she spoke to someone and she said, oh, there's like no greater fan. She loves these Beatles. And they said, well, we're coming to America in early November. We'd like to meet with your daughter. We want to find out about the fan club. And sure enough, it was um, uh, a day that I had off from school because it was Veterans Day. It was a Monday. Um, and I didn't remember the date, but I have since November 11th. And my dad drove me from Oakland, New Jersey. It was 26 miles from the George Washington Bridge 
to um, Manhattan to Walter Hoffer's law office on, I think it was like West 54th or 55th Street at that time. And we went into his office and there stood Brian and some other people with English accents. Um, And Walter Hoffer was this sort of tiny guy with a, a distinctive accent. It was sort of like a German accent. He had, and um, anyway, uh, they all looked at me because I, you know, was like 13 years old and was not at all like the age of someone who could run the fan club. And, um, (laughs) but, um, you know, they thanked me for coming in and, Walter Hoffer's assistant called me over. I mean, we shook Brian's hand and we shook the other people's hand. I found out later it was this guy, um, Jeffrey Ellis, who was the other man there with Brian, a friend of his who I think was living in New York at that time and later went back to work with Brian in England. And um, (laughs) they uh, said, well, you know, thank you for all your effort. Um, if we do the deal as expected later today and we get on the Ed Sullivan show, we will send you a ticket. Mm. Wow. And so- I said, thank you. And that is how the deal was made later that day and sort of shook hands the day after that. And that's how I got my single ticket. So how Actually, disappointed this is fascinating. This it is, is fascinating to me because I I knew that the the legends were about, you know, uh Ed Sullivan not being able to make it through Heathrow Airport thinking what was the deal going on here and because the Beatles had come back from Sweden and he found out who they were and you got to talk to this Epstein and then Brian said I'm going over to New York to to try and set this up. Yet little do we know that and this isn't surprising that Brian knew that the passion of the young fans from Liverpool and all around the place who ran the fan clubs, especially the young women, would have the energy and the drive before we knew of things like the Internet and chats to yeah. get their friends on board and to fuel it from the populace up, right, from the kids up. But I didn't know that something like this had happened behind the scenes because Brian's team, if you will, the advanced team, has to hit high with Sullivan, but they've got to hit all the levels too, right? Because then it catches like fire with the DJs, and we know what happened, creating the frenzy and everything. So now, were there any other sort of young fan club representatives like yourself there? You might not have been the only person whose family came back from England with a gift. Were there other people in that region that maybe Brian had known of or that you knew of? No. Um, When I went to Walter Hoffer's office, it was around 11 o'clock in the morning on that. It was a Monday morning and um, uh, there were no other other girls or fans that I could see my age there. There were like three men with these British accents, Brian being one, standing off on the side. Walter Hoffer sort of running around, a couple secretaries, that was it. Mm. And I remember, if you ask me what was my first impression of Brian, yes, I remember his gold cufflinks. Mm. Um, shining. Hmm. I remember those cufflinks on him. It was really just amazing. And then the second thing was the British accent, which I had never really heard 
in person. I think that was the first time I ever heard a British accent right before me. I didn't know what Brian looked like. I didn't even know at that point who Brian was. There was no way to find these things out without an internet. Who is this man? Oh, he's, he's the manager. He arranges things. He does that. I really didn't know his power until later. You know, now that I'm working with doing things with um, the Ed Sullivan show, as I said, um, I've learned a little bit more about the story and how the Beatles did get on Sullivan. And yes, it was Ed and his wife, Sylvia, who intersected with the Beatles on October 31st, 1963. They, uh, the, the Beatles came from Sweden and they were changing planes and it was a very busy day at the airport and everything. But Ed, had heard about the Beatles before from his talent representative by the name of Peter Pritchard. Peter Pritchard was a paid sort of staff member, but also worked for Sir Lou Grade in the UK and did things like that for Lou Grade and with his music catalogs and all the other things he owned. And it was Peter Pritchard with the New York talent coordinator for Sullivan, Jack Babb, who had been in touch about the Beatles and the growing aspect of the Beatles and things. And Peter Pritchard knew Brian um, in London, you know, just sort of as all in the entertainment industry. So, and he had followed, and he had already said something to Jack Babb about the Beatles, but they really thought that at that point, Ed wasn't really interested that much in probably booking um, the Beatles. But as time got closer, and then Ed saw the Beatles there in October and heard about that, Peter Pritchard told Brian or heard that Brian was planning to go to New York. He wanted to schedule that meeting between Ed Sullivan and um, Brian. Mm -hmm. So it was Pritchard who then phoned Ed Sullivan while Brian was in the air to really set that meeting to get them on the Sullivan show. When When Brian left for New York, he left with Billy J. Kramer to go work on Billy J. Kramer and the Dakota's career. He thought Billy J. Kramer would become this crooner like Bobby Darin. And he went there also to find out why the Beatles weren't really catching on. Those were his two purposes on that trip. So it was thereafter that all that happened. Um, so it was a little bit of the talent coordinators too. Mm-hmm. So were you thoroughly disappointed when you found that you you found out that you were just too young for them uh, to run the fan club? You know, being um, a thirteen-year-old. Uh huh. You know what? Um, not n- not really. Um, you know. I said, I remember saying to Brian, and how I really remember it is my dad always, years later, would tell me, I said it. I said, uh, Mr. Epstein, I have to go to college. I cannot work. I, I can't go to work. I'm too young. You know, I'm too young. But what I later realized is, is that 
Here I was 13. At the age of 15, it wasn't unusual for young people to go to work in England. If you didn't go on in school, your path was at 15, you went to work. Yeah. So um, maybe, you know, I wasn't really that young, but yet I came across very young. So no, I wasn't, I wasn't disappointed. I was you know, I was hoping that the deal would happen. I had no way of really knowing after I left. So I just waited patiently for that ticket to come. But the (laughs) secretary there in Walter Hoffer's office was really very nice. And I called her once and I said, I'm waiting for my tickets. She goes, we don't physically have the tickets yet. So just wait. And then sure enough, just about a week before it was already probably the very end of February or I mean, very end of January, beginning of February when the ticket came. It, I was nervous. So at school, uh, mm-hmm. there was all this drama building waiting for February 9th, right? Oh, yeah. It was really exciting. By then, all my friends were excited. The girls who didn't like the Beatles before suddenly really loved the Beatles. Um, and, um, and it was really nice because after that, and when the fan club really started rolling, Walter Hoffer ended up moving his law office from like 54th or 55th street to West 57th street to a much larger office. And he gave over his supply, like big closet, a big walk-in closet to the fan club. And Brian ended up hiring um, a full-time person. And then he later hired two um, women who were a couple years older than me uh, named Pam and Sue. Um, And they worked at the club. They were part-time dancers and would come in and work. And because I knew where Walter Hoffer's office was, I was allowed in to help. It was probably one of the most guarded secrets where the actual fan club was housed because they did not want people coming there. Sure. It would have been crowds outside. Do you still have the album that was sent to you back in 63? You know what? I have the actual um, inside of the English pressing I do not have the outside of the album. But right after that, I started realizing and collecting everything. Mm-hmm. So my, my collection is, is, pretty, is, is pretty good. I've, I've, kept, I've kept almost, almost everything. Yeah, uh, I, I think that it's pretty, uh, it's very cool that your parents allowed you to go with just one ticket. Because uh, yeah. mostly you, you always get two. And uh, so you go that evening, your mom takes you. Is that correct? Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. My mom drove me and we parked in a parking lot. We walked across 53rd Street and there were police on horses. There were barricades. And I looked around the corner to my left. And I saw all these cars dropping off people, but I was like two barricades away. And I was like so nervous because I thought everyone's going in and I can't get there. 
I couldn't get there. So there was a police officer who was like stopping us. And fortunately, my mom was there right with me. And she showed the ticket to the officer and he said, stand here and then come back. And then he helped me through um, to get inside. The, the nice thing about it is even though I was there by myself, I um, spoke to um, two sisters who were there at that night. And sure enough, I like know them. We've rekindled our friendship. I've met them probably about 10 years ago again. And so it's been really, it's been really nice to see some people that I did connect with there while we were in the audience, you know? Yeah, because I was wondering, you know, uh, with the age of the internet now, you can have little groups and little pockets of friends that if there is a group of people that did go to the show and they and they've converged together as a group. I'm not sure if that, how many, I wonder how many people are, are still around from that well, night that were in the theater. Yeah, yeah. I've spent, I've spent some time um, actually researching that. Mm-hmm. And I have tracked down 11 people who were in that February 9th audience. Wow. And I've tracked down one fellow who was in the audience for the rehearsal on that Sunday afternoon on February 9th, the rehearsal that was taped to air on February 23rd. Mm-hmm. So, cause they taped that rehearsal for the third performance. Ah. So um, I found one guy who was sitting in, in that audience. So I'm beginning to put everything together for, Andrew and organize things for maybe in a couple of years. Let's hope if we're, you know, hopefully we'll all be here for the big 60th anniversary in February, 2024, you know? Wow. 60 years. Unbelievable. 60 years, uh, yeah. Professor Gallant is back. We got disconnected. Yes. No, uh, welcome a, back, David. Technology oh. on my end. I had wanted to ask Debbie, um, how large is the frame under which you've, preserved your ticket from the Ed Sullivan show. That ticket is gone. Okay. That ticket. Thank you. (laughs) That ticket is gone. We did not get like all other tickets. They rip in half and they give you a piece. Not at the Ed Sullivan show. You handed it in and they took the entire ticket. Oh my goodness. Mm. So you did (laughs) not get, they're, they're really the only way that there could be a ticket is if um, you just didn't go to the con- to the show. And mm-hmm. who wouldn't have used that ticket or given it to someone else? I mean, the demand was so, you know, I did see, and this is really awful, there's been so many, you know, um, auctions of Beatle memorabilia. And I do go on and check them from time to time at all these very well-known auction houses. And I saw one ticket for the Ed Sullivan show, and this auction house sold it for well over Mm $5,000. Now, let me tell you, having been there, that was not the ticket. The ticket that they sold was the ticket made by uh, Robert Zemeckis, 
and Steven Spielberg for their 1978 movie, I Want to Hold Your Hand. That was the ticket because I loaned them some of my memorabilia that was used in the film. And they gave me, I never, I didn't get money. I've never gotten money for this Beatle thing, you know? And um, they gave me some of the props that they made for like the newspapers that they handed out, the Beatle tickets. And that was the ticket made for the movie. And this auction house sold it for over $5,000 as like a real ticket. Well, it's only as real as it was a movie prop. So it was misrepresented. Right. They sold yes. that. That's terrible. Yes, it's terrible. Wow. Terrible. And, that's a, and that was a great movie. I really it was a great movie. want to hold your hand. They're a lot of fun movie, you know. Um, but that's pretty interesting. And I got to tell you, um, I was brought up on Ed Sullivan as a child. I loved Ed Sullivan. I have an Ed Sullivan book downstairs, Christmas Stories by Ed Sullivan, that he's compiled from different celebrities. So I followed Ed even before the Beatles because my parents loved him. And his nickname was Old Stoneface, and he was yeah. married to Sylvia. And so you you make it into the show. And I've been into the I've been in the theater for the Letterman show, and I know it's been changed a lot since mm-hmm. the day you sat there. Uh, but tell me about Ed Sullivan. I'm a huge Ed freak, and I Ed, in school I did a great imitation of Ed Sullivan too. Mm-hmm. So, but tell me <laughs> tell me about everything that you took in uh, from that evening. Yeah. Well, when I finally got in into the there's like I went through the door, and there's like an inside vestibule. And then after the inside vestibule, there were people directing you on which way to go. There's a big controversy with the people who I've spoken with who sat in the audience like me on what we did with our coats. We can't remember what happened with our coats because it doesn't look like we had our coats with us. So we're thinking, and I've asked Vince Calandra, who was the, a production assistant for Ed Sullivan's show. I said, Vince, what happens with people's coats? He said there was like a coat check in the lobby. And I have a feeling that we may have given our coats in. Anyway, we're all directed to our seats. And a lot of people going down to the orchestra, but not me. I was told, you're going upstairs. I said, okay, fine. And frankly, that's when I did. That was the first time I really did get upset. I really wanted to be downstairs, not upstairs, all the way in the back of the mezzanine. Little did I know, though, that seat I was being taken to was probably one of the best pieces of fortune ever in my life. And I just decided, hey, you know what? I'm just happy to be here. I'll just do what they do. And they brought me and they sat me down. There was a man on one side and then on his other side, there were children sitting and then me. And then there were a couple other girls. And then there were some girls behind me, one of whom was like jumping in her seats like crazy already. And I just sort of sat down and just waited. And I, I really began to try and take in all everything that was going on because there was a lot of commotion on the stage. Um, I'd say that I was probably seated oh, at least 45 minutes before the show started. I could have even been sitting there longer, but I remember it being a long time. And um, so I just I sat there waiting for the show. I spoke to a couple of the people sitting in front of me or behind me, and 
Um, I mean, mostly the people got their tickets, um, not like with my scenario of writing a letter and whatever. Mostly the people got them either because their parents work somewhere. The biggest, the, the, the greatest number of people that I found were um, individuals who had um, connections to sponsors, like the the uh, commercial sponsors for the Sullivan shows and the advertising agencies, they seemed to command uh, the most power there and were able to get tickets for people associated. And we just sat there, but we started to scream. And there was like, you know, there's always been this, you know, can you believe this? Can you believe this? There were girls there saying, oh, I stood in front of the Plaza Hotel yesterday. And I I think I saw the Beatles from their room. And I did this and I did that. And we ran here and we ran there. You know, there was just lots of stories going on between mm-hmm. some of the people who were there. And, and then, you know, all of a sudden the show... The show started and it was just, um, you know, seeing Ed Sullivan, first of all, in person was somewhat startling (laughs) because we always had, you know, black and white TV and suddenly to go and see these people in real life. It was like the carpet was like blue. I remember it looking blue as looked down and um, it was just really, it was really interesting to see everything sort of come to life. And I don't, we just all started screaming. It was really, it was hard to control. And then he introduced the Beatles and it was just, um, I mean, you know, I sit here and I talk to you guys and it, it still is, is an emotional experience all these years later. And as I said, I haven't really spoken about it in a, in quite a while, but it's, it's, um, it's still, I remember my feelings just sort of sitting there and thinking, oh my God, here, here are the Beatles. Like just almost like right in front of me. It was, it was beyond magic. And you had a close up shot too. You were, because it's a small theater. So you had a great view. Yeah. I had a great view turned out so much better than being in the orchestra. Yeah, that I didn't complain. I had just such a great view. I was sitting there and it was like, boom, right right down in front of me, you know, and uh, right down. John was to my right, sort of, George in the middle, Paul, pretty much straight on. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Now, David, you and I, we've only seen these, you know, the black and white footage. Certainly some of those Beatle collector cards, they have the Ed (laughs) Sullivan shots in color but when you you saw it in color with the, what, what what was the scenery in behind it was like blue right is that correct yeah yeah it was there was a lot of blue i remember it being a lot of blue you know and and your memory of the event get de- definitely does get shadowed by seeing it so many times and seeing the video repeated and repeated and things like that so what I may remember is not exactly what I remember because it just might be me watching the video, but I never knew um, until um, 20 years after the effect they, uh, when I, um, what, that I was actually on the show. 
Okay, I went home that night. My father was watching all my friends in school. Um, I mean, they, they didn't tell me, oh, we saw you on TV last night. Not a single person did. It wasn't until um, when I met this, funny how Andrew has played a role in this for so many years. Um, Andrew and David Wolper were doing a, a documentary um, called Imagine. Mm. For Warner Brothers way back in the middle 50s, 80s. And he called me in and um, needed to get some of Michael McCartney's photos for the documentary. And he knew through Bob Precht, who knew me working at CBS, that I had a connection to try and get those still photographs that he desperately wanted to use in the Imagine um, feature documentary. So I went and I met him. And after I met him, and uh, he then, and I worked with him on it, and I helped him get the Mike McCartney photos. When Andrew purchased it in 1990, the um, catalog, he was looking at the shows and he said, and he knew by then that I had sat in the audience. He called me up and he goes, you know, I think you should drive by my office. I have something I want to show you. So it wasn't until about 19, I don't know, 90, 91, somewhere there that I even knew that I was in the video because he showed it to me in his office one afternoon. And I went home, said to my husband, I said, I think I'm, I'm there. <laughs> well, I, you know, so, I don't know if you, I mean, you must have understood this under, uh, over time. I mean, you've been a, a, a professional in, in the media all of these years. How important you are to the fabric of that film. You know, the, 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 this was, you know, a point I make to, to my students that, you know, for maybe one of the first times they had done it probably for some other pop stars before, but um, those who were filming a television program now became as fascinated with the audience as they were with the performers, that it was really a, a sort of, you know, reciprocal relationship, you know, in terms of, of, of um, uh, communication feedback. You know, you don't know that the Beatles are having that effect unless you're filming the audience, too. At the uh, at the same time. And uh, so it's it's really kind of neat to see that. And um, you are and some of the other uh, uh, kids and people around you are, are as important as to what's going on in the stage. That's why the, we always find that fascinating in class when we take a look at the at the Maisel's Brothers film and their mm -hmm. documentary where you do see the self, self performance. But they then go around the corner down the street to a tenement and they film the family watching it. And that's another great dynamic for those who couldn't be there, but they might as well have been there the way you had the, mm -hmm. when they go into that family and there's like three generations of, or, or the girls, the older teenage girl who's right at the right age, her younger sister, who of course is idolizing her older sister and really the baby who's idolizing both of them, but <laughs> reaching it on their own level. Mm -hmm. um, and you're right there. It's so important the the shots of you, the reaction shots, uh, because what the students understand is it's not staged. It's it's purely coming out of you the way that you're you're viewing it and, and taking it in. So it's really quite an, an effective and, and an affecting moment, too, 
for them to understand the the power of what was going on that you know one of the reasons why the screams were there is because you really had no language to put to the emotions <laughs> you know yeah. you didn't have the vocabulary and so you you screamed that that was the the way that you could express it so um it really is a sort of a, and i'm i'm just again i'm fascinated to understand and to to realize that it's almost as if, you know, the way we sort of say, oh, we don't know what's real unless we saw it on television, that no one really knew or <laughs> there was film of you there, but you didn't know that people saw you until 20 years later. I mean, that's just amazing <laughs> when you think of it, right? <laughs> there was just no way. I never saw the, you know, the video or the film or whatever they shot the thing on at that point. I was 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 that one of the reasons why then it must have been a, a couple of other things because of everything you were doing but did that also play a role as to how you were identified to become part of the documentary film about the making of a hard day's night yes yes i got to know um walter shenson pretty well over the years and when he decided back in the mid 90s he wanted to do the making of a hard day's night because I was active in the fan club, I um, received yet another telegram, telegram which I still own, um, and it was from this guy by the name of Mike Hutner, and Mike was head of publicity at United Artists, and he sent me this telegram, and he said, you know, we really want you to get fans to sleep overnight on the sidewalk in front of the theater the night before the tickets are going to be sold for a hard day's night. You know, we want to cause a, a big ruckus. We want the media there. We'll have police. We'll bring you hot chocolate. We'll give you blankets and pillows and everything, but try and get some of your fan club members to come and stay overnight to stage an event, you know? So that's how my recollections of that. I mean, since that, I was interviewed in, you know, the big three and a half hour CBS Grammy salute mm -hmm. on the Beatles. Mm -hmm. I was in that show and I talk about everything that I've pretty much shared with you guys with a couple of the other who I call my Beatles sisters with three other Beatles sisters. Um, and um, we, we talked about in that big CBS show, um, you know, what it was like sitting in the audience. And frankly, in Ron Howard's film, um, whatever it was, Eight, eight days, days a, week. a week and traveling, yeah. whatever the feature. Yeah. I'm in the accompanying uh, DVD in the area. It's called Three Fans. And they had three fans talk about it. And I talked about New York and being in the Sullivan audience. Then they had another fan who talked about being at Washington Coliseum and doing that. So I've come to exactly what you're saying, um, David, is interesting because after I did the Grammy Award show uh -huh. and then found out in the Ron Howard documentary, they really did think, and I've come to sort of agree with them, that the fans and all of us who were there were as much as the, I don't know, to seem very sort of academic, the sociological aspect of the Beatles and their popularity in America, it was because 
us vans were just so crazed about them, you know. Mm-hmm. And everyone asks me, and that was one of the questions they asked Ron Howard, why did you go and scream? Why didn't you listen to the Beatles? And there's a really logical reason. If we wanted to sit there and listen to the Beatles, we would play their record. <laughs> we did not need to hear them. I didn't need to hear them sing. It was like I could listen to them in my own bedroom and put on their singles or albums and enjoy them. Mm. The point was is to, number one, breathe the same air that they were breathing. Okay, that is number one. And just to let them know how much we love them and appreciated them. It was that chance to be one-on-one with your idols. The music, they could have just come out and answered questions on the stage. They didn't really need to play. It was a nice backdrop to see them. I mean, but I don't know. I just, it was just sharing that moment. Sure. So did you, two questions, did you hear them? And then you could probably could see the monitors. Were you shocked to see that John was married? Oh, yes, yes, (laughs) yes. However, that I didn't see in the studio. Ah. That is what I learned. Not that I was on camera, but when I got home, my father said, well, you know that John Lennon, He's married. I said, what? (laughs) Oh, yeah. They said he was married. I said, well, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. But sorry, girls, he's married, you know? (laughs) So I I really wasn't watching the monitor all that much. And and could you hear them with all the screaming going on in the theater? Mm Mm-hmm. You could. Yeah, I could hear them. In, in, In the Sullivan studio itself, Yes, I couldn't hear them at Shea Stadium. Oh, so really. you saw them at Shea? Yeah, well, that's sort of what I was was like, sort of referring to as just being in the same place at Shea sure. Stadium. Sure. I remember them running out. I remember John playing the keyboard with his elbow. I remember a couple girls trying to run onto the center of the stage. I mean, a lot of things like that, but. Um, and I really don't remember hearing them because I was screaming all so much there. But um, in the Sullivan show, because it was a, a situation, the screaming wasn't that loud that you couldn't hear them. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. David, did you have a question? Well, no, I just, I, <laughs> I guess um, I was, I was interested to know about if, if Debbie sort of experienced the phenomenon of the screaming in the movie theater when, when the fans went to see a hard day's night. And so that to me is a little bit different from, look, we were screaming because we didn't need to hear them play. We could, we could get that from the records and we listened to them over and over again. Now in, in watching a hard day's night though, there would have been a lot missed, right? Even though, People wouldn't have known that they were missing a lot of the dialogue, which was hard to pick up. But, you know, there was still screaming inside the theater, which, you know, was amazing to, to think about. Right. 
Yes. Yes. Okay. Well, I got an answer for that one too. (laughs) (laughs) I was fortunate enough because of the fan club is that I got invited to a preview screening. And I still remember it was like July and we lined up at the Beacon Theater on the Upper West Side on Broadway. We had these big oversized tickets and all the DJs were there. Murray the K, Cousin Brucie, the good guys from WMCA. Not to mention, waiting in line in front of me was Frank Sinatra Jr., Holy cow. How did I know it was Frank Sinatra Jr.? Because he had just been famous in the news because he had been kidnapped. (laughs) Okay, a few months before, Frank Sinatra Jr. had been kidnapped. And Frank Sinatra actually, I think, paid a ransom to get him back, right? Mm -hmm. And so he was recognizable. He was seated right next to me. As we were led in and put in, there weren't assigned seats, but yet they took us in, I don't know, with our big seats. Mm-hmm. Well, I have to tell you, now, I, even with him, and I tried, because I was seated next to this man, who I knew he was, like, for me, a celebrity, a big celebrity, I tried to maintain, could not, could not. When I mean, it was it was such a beautiful movie to see this film and to see them larger in life so close up. It's like a scream. And the answer to that is, yes, you could scream because guess what? We could watch the movie again and again (laughs) and again and again and again and again. Now, Debbie, I'm going to I'm going to mess up the number, but. It's it's my students gasp because in the documentary, you sort of surmise I must have seen it. And the number is in the 20s. I forget the exact number you said, how many times you saw the film when it came out. Well, I did that interview in 1994 in the making of A Hard Day's Night. That's when we did it. So we're looking at many, many years ago. Mm-hmm. I'd say now I'm probably up to easily, you know, 35 times that I've seen the movie, if not close to 40. But that's not counting all the clips that I've seen from it, mm-hmm. which obviously has to be, you know, I mean, just like so, so many times. I mean, it's such a classic, beautiful, beautiful movie. And Richard Lester, I mean, is a director with, you know, unbounded talent. And um, he and Walter Shenson together really understood what A Day in the Life of the Beatles was probably like, and really got very lucky with the um, fellow who wrote the screenplay, whatever his name is, Alan Owen or something, mm-hmm. and who had Liverpool roots too, so he could get that. But yeah, but sitting in the movie theater and screaming, there were, I mean, they shot that to get, to elicit that scream from us. There are close-ups in that film that if you were a female fan, there was no way 
that you could contain yourself from screaming. You just couldn't. Close-ups of George and John. Remember Paul and And I Love Her? Oh, my goodness. Wow. Wow. And George and I'm happy just to dance with you. And then them running around and Can't Buy Me Love, which... Richard Lester took right out of that film that he had like an Academy Award nomination, the running, jumping, standing, whatever film that he did. And I mean, just seeing them romp through the field, it was beautiful. Beautiful film. So the question is, I mean, you saw them at the Ed Sullivan show, you saw them at Shea, you obviously saw Hard Day's Night. Did you ever meet them personally? Yes, I did. Tell us about that. Okay. Um, And I actually saw them a couple of other times. I saw them for your audience in 1966 at Suffolk Downs, actually. Wow, you're in Boston, which is, and we're taping today on, what, the 17th? So the anniversary is tomorrow. I think it was the 18th. Yes, August 18th, 1966. I was, right. I was on vacation with my parents. I was on vacation with my parents in um, Rockport. In Rockport, Massachusetts. (laughs) And um, my dad had a friend there and we were up visiting and I begged him. I said, please, please, please take me to Suffolk down. Take me to Suffolk down. And we got we got a ticket. You know, that 1966 tour was not a complete sellout. Um, especially after the more popular than Jesus comment. I mean, Shea Stadium in in 66, there were 10,000 tickets that went unsold. And at Suffolk Downs, you could, even up to that day, get a ticket. It maybe wasn't a great seat. But anyway, so I went went there and um, saw them at Suffolk Downs. But um, what, I mean, what was your, I got carried away, sorry. Oh, what, tell us when you met them personally. Oh, when I met them, yeah, okay. So, um, through the fan club, I had got sent to a lot of things to do New York media. And I used to go on this show called The Clay Cole Show. Clay Cole on WPIX, Channel 11 in New York, had this teen show where he was sort of a sometime actor, dance kind of person. But he got this show where he was presenting people like Little Anthony and the Imperials and Jay and the Americans and um, that whole group of, of Ronettes to local. And they wanted to do things with the Beatles to bring it a little bit more up to date for the younger teenagers. And there was a novelty record that came out in 1964 called Beatles for uh, Ringo for President. And um, they sent me to go on that show with a group of singers who were singing this novelty record. And I went on and I started to do this thing and they liked it. So I would go on each week for about a year and answer Beatle fan club questions that fans would write in and do answers on the TV show. And um, so anyway, I happened to be at Walter Hoffer's office on West 57th street at the fan club, picking up my materials for that week's Clay Colt show when Brian was in town and he remembered me 
meeting me like, you know, the year before, almost a year and a half at that point. And I said, I'm here. I help at the fan club and everything. And he said, good. And he goes, did you enjoy meeting the Beatles? And I said, no, I had gone to Forest Hills Tennis Stadium in uh, August of 1964 to see them, but I didn't meet them. And he goes, you didn't meet the Beatles? And I said, no. He goes, when the Beatles come the next time, you are going to meet them. Holy so I said, okay, fine. So um, sure enough, um, Bernice Young, who was the, um, the older woman, she was like 35 years old then, really old. <laughs> um, when it came time for the Beatles to come to play Shea Stadium and start that tour and come to America, I said to her, Bernice, you were here on that day when um, Brian Epstein said I was going to meet the Beatles. And she said, has nothing to do with me selecting who's going to meet the Beatles. It has everything to do with the promoter of the concert. Sid Bernstein. So I said, okay, fine. He chooses who goes to meet the Beatles. Sid's office was next door at 119 West 57th Street. And I had had contact with him because he was doing concerts at the Academy of Music on 14th Street for all different bands. Herman's Hermits, The Kings, Manfred Mann, all these people. Rolling Stones, Rolling Stones. Yeah. And so um, he had messed up on my tickets to see Herman's Hermits and I had to get in touch with him. And so he knew who I was because he he helped me get the right tickets. So I wrote him a letter and actually hand delivered it to his office saying, could he please choose me to go and meet the Beatles? And that's how I did in. Um, Friday, August 13th, 1965, the Beatles flew directly from London to JFK, from JFK to the Warwick Hotel. I was at the Warwick Hotel when they arrived, and I was there for their press conference, and I sat through their press conference and took pictures. So I have beautiful pictures of the press conference. And afterwards, I was brought upstairs to meet the Beatles. And that's when I met the Beatles and including the people who were there was also someone who I met, who I stood on the side with waiting for the Beatles. And that was Andy Warhol. Could wow. you believe that? Andy Warhol was there. <laughs> oh yeah. God. It was really, really amazing. <laughs> but I met the Beatles that wow. day. So that was war. That 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 was that was Andy's first fifteen minutes of fame. That's fantastic. <laughs> right, right. Uh, uh, Chachi, sometime you'll have to. Well, it it, it you'll have to play Debbie the famous uh, voicemail from Sid uh, that yes. uh, uh, that you have. You know, yeah. It's, I became um, I became uh, friends with Sid a, in uh, final years. A lovely man, right? Um, a guy who made millions, lost millions. Um, I really, really appreciated him. I'm friends with his son, Dylan, uh, now. Well, and, yeah, and it's like he lived to a really ripe old age, Sid. And um, he was really, I owe him 
it's all because of him that I got to meet the Beatles. Yeah, he was a great man. I, I knew him in the last 10 years of his life. We became friends. Mm -hmm. And I was always sad because he would always invite me to New York to go to a deli with him. And I never took him up on that offer. Uh, but he's a great man. And he left this beautiful voicemail that I occasionally air on my show on his birthday. Oh, I'd love to hear it. Yeah, yeah he was so nice. He could have had egg creams with him. He yes. was a guy who you never, he never, you know, he may have lived in Manhattan, but he was still a Bronx boy. Yep. And every <laughs> afternoon would have his egg creams there in his office. Yeah, he would. He told me how, you know, he would, he was so insightful. He'd read the London papers in New York and he used to see these little blurbs Mm -hmm. about if my memory serves me correctly he see these little blurbs on a band called the beatles in the paper and then the the articles yeah. got bigger and bigger yeah. and he called queenie epstein's house and brian was living there yeah. Yeah. and he he befriended queenie because queenie loved the new york times book section and he would mail her that's right the book section and that's how he you know, became friends with Queenie, but he was an amazing man. God, God rest his soul. That's an absolutely, absolutely true story. And how he got the phone number for Queenie and Brian having been there is that because he was already promoting people like Tony Bennett and Judy Garland and all those people. And there was a promoter, a record guy who came into his office and Sid mentioned something from the newspapers and he said that promoter said, you know, hey, I'm working on trying to promote the Beatles here. And he said, do you have a number for their manager? And he goes, yeah, I'll get you the number. And that's how Sid got the phone number. Pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah. Pretty amazing. Cool David? Story. Well, I, uh, you know, I, I, don't know i don't debbie has never mentioned being at this show but speaking of sid i'd always uh i'd never heard anyone interviewed who actually was at the carnegie hall concert and i know that that was something famously that sid pulled off uh and um but uh i don't know it, it, you weren't there debbie i i suppose since no. you hadn't necessarily talked about it but yeah um, it seems to have been something sort of not so much silent and underground, but no one really ever talks about that particular show or seeing well, them at, at, at Carnegie Hall. I know one person who was there. Really? Still she with lives, us? Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I know one person and she was sitting on the stage. Wow. It is the only time that Carnegie Hall ever mm. let people for a performance sit on the stage with the performers and how she got there was she was taking ballet lessons in the same building and she heard that the mm. Beatles were coming she was my age actually I think she's a year or so older than me and she heard that the Beatles were coming and she managed to get one of the seats, the last minute seats on the stage. You know, that's the big thing. That was not filmed at all, that concert. Mm -hmm. So there's no right. real right. record of it. And um, so I only know this one woman who was actually there. And um, Happy Rockefeller, the wife of Nelson Rockefeller, her daughter, Wendy, 
who I believe is still around somewhere. I think she may live in Montana, is walking around, and I know she was there. There were two shows, one that like started at like, I don't know, 7.30, 8.30, and then one that like started at like 11 o'clock at night. They didn't get out of there. The Beatles didn't get out of there till 1.30 in the morning. Oh, my word. Yeah, yeah. that's what's amazing, Chachi, because with, with everybody you know in the who who has lived within the, the and I don't mean this in a bad way but it'll appeal to someone from Jersey within the weeds and swamps of of beetle ephemera you've never found I've never seen a bootleg from the audio of that show or anything like that it's really such it's really such a mystery i mean all we have is 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 dear old happy rockefeller's words right <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, it, uh, that's amazing but you know debbie it's just been I mean, it's it, we've had we've Chachi's interviewed a lot of guests before. He's had you on his show years ago. Here's but the way you've put things together tonight is just this, you know, the kind of old, you know, Woody Allen film that you're, you're this zealot at these moments in history that are uh, really, really, truly, truly amazing, truly amazing. You know, we 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 interviewed a a, a counterpart maybe of yours a little bit further south uh, from Philadelphia, Patty Gallo, uh, Pat, Patty Gallo Stenman, who, you know, I don't know if you had heard of her. She wrote a great book about her life as a, as a, the fan club sort of uh, uh, doyen of Philadelphia at that time. And uh, she was actually the, what, what Chachi, the president of the, um, of the Victor Spinetti fan club, if you can imagine that, right. Uh -huh. talk, about someone, talk about someone who loved a hard day's night. He gave her like a, a one of the, uh, version of the sweater the famous sweater that he wore in that film whoa exactly with the mohair right? with the the mohair. Mohair. yes 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 looks like she knitted him exactly right yes. so uh and so you know um it's amazing to hear those stories but i you can you know you can uh, you certainly win a duel with Patty if there ever is such a thing you know when you're amongst <laughs> those other those other witnesses to history it's uh it, it really is uh it's incredible. It's yeah, her story parallels yours because she was very young and she loved the Beatles. And then Victor was playing in a theater in some stage production. She uh -huh. hung out at the stage door, befriended Victor, created the Victor Spinetti fan club. And in return, he would send her things. He gave her the sweater. He sent her uh, uh, Paul McCartney's hair. He sent her a... Uh -huh airline menu they were all on a plane together all four Beatles and victor signed the menu to her oh isn't that nice he got paul to send her a happy birthday postcard he sent her a candles from george harrison's 21st birthday cake so uh and she puts it all in a bank vault to this day <laughs> and she wrote a book diary of a beetle maniac and that wow and I'm going to write this down. I want to read this book. It's a great book. Patty Gallo Stenman. And I can connect you with her. She would I'd love, love to talk to. to you. And her life course was designed because of the Beatles. She started writing a local article in a local newspaper. And she's a journalist now, years later. And she put out this book all because she befriended Victor Spinetti. Isn't that interesting? So there's some parallels. Diary of yeah. a Beatle Maniac, Patty Gallo Stenman. And I'd be happy to connect you with her. Oh, but, I'd love to. Yeah, she's awesome. Chachi, these are the, these are the all stars, Chachi, that we get to talk to, right? Mm -hmm. These are the amongst the fan club 
uh, folks and those who were the, uh, as you know, um, our friend uh, Kenny Lennon would say, really the, the, the steam in the engine that drove Beatlemania in the U.S., there are actually parallel Beatles amongst that group. And I think mm -hmm. Debbie's one of them. You know, uh, so, oh. you know, because every every phenomenon, every phenomenon needs a parallel phenomenon to fuel it. And and uh -huh. I think certainly that's is what uh, uh, Debbie and, and uh, Patty and Candy are all uh, are all about. And the point that is made that uh, both what uh, Debbie's done and what uh, uh, Patty talked about, that being that young Beatlemaniac is is what fueled her desire to uh, go against maybe some of what the family ex her family expected and going on to college and becoming a professional journalist and really um, making her her own way as a as a professional young woman in an era where that certainly was not necessarily common and the odds were were more stacked uh, uh, against you and and she had to fight through the uh, the restrictions of uh, uh, Catholic school. A Catholic girls school, well, <laughs> which I remember her, her Catholic, her Catholic uh, girls school, the building abutted the back of the building where American bandstand was filmed <laughs> in Philadelphia. <laughs> so it's a, uh, it's quite amazing. What fun. <laughs> well, what fun. Yeah. yeah. It, you know what though? It was, it was such a great time. You know, it's like, I mean, the one thing I don't regret is my age. I welcome it. Because yeah. you know what? I think that the times that m me and my contemporaries that we lived through were really, in a sense, you know, there was there was a wonderful time. And, and, it, and there are, you know, many people that I know and friends I have here where I live. And um, we all say, you know, it was a time to celebrate the good things in your life. And as we look at life today and we don't know what holds for us you know there was so much that it was a time of of great divide between the american public there were you know in england there were the mods and the rockers there were the upper class and the lower class and this here there were the people with vietnam pro-vietnam and anti-vietnam and there was so much division between the people yet you know what we managed to eke through a really wonderful, wonderful time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's just, I'm just so happy that I have those memories to look back on. So, you know, as people, you know, sort of regret, oh, I'm getting older, I'm getting older, I'm this, I'm that, you know what? I think, hey, I feel really fortunate to have been around to enjoy what I did. And, you know, and to that, I owe it to the Beatles, you know? Well, we're fortunate to have you with us today. And I wonder, and as we close, because we've gone over an hour, um, I wonder if your career would have happened if you had not had this Beatle thing going on. Would you have gone into television? Because I don't know if you, I don't know, Professor, if you read some of Deb's, uh, uh, resume here you, you've received two emmy nominations you worked at cbs as an executive in la and new york did shows abc nbc the food network i mean the list goes on a and e discovery you helped launch the national geographic channel yeah, yeah. i wonder if the beetle thing didn't happen if all of this would have happened you know what i don't think it would have I don't think it would have, because you know what the Beatle thing did, at least with what I did with, you know, like Brian and Walter and Sid Bernstein and work and organize and things like that. It led me 
to um, really understand how an adult world that functions while still a teen. So it, it helped me as I um, got older and made career choices and went out into the world. So I think it really influenced me. You know? Well, you have had a great career, oh. and uh, we're so blessed to have you, Deb. Oh, thank you. And uh, we want to thank you. you. Uh, Professor, any last final words for Deb? Well, well, one thing I, I want to make sure. Yes. I, I want to <laughs> <words, laughs> let it be, right? Um, I think that uh, uh, so so we get it on the audio. Um, uh, uh, Deb was correcting you, Chachi. It's three Emmy nominations. She held up three fingers. You had said two. Oh, I want to make, sure <laughs> make sure that I worked hard. I worked hard for that last one. I, I, I want to make sure that that our listeners know that it was that it was three. Okay. Uh, no, I I do think that that's a great that's a great point to make about um, if not for that then not everything else and um, uh, I do think that it's a way too that you were exposed early not just how the adult world works but um, basically growing up in the in the media age when it was when it was put into hyperdrive uh fueled by technology and broadcast technology and and now the uh, the internet you know being sort of at the um at the ground floor of a lot of uh, a lot of new distribution methods and and um basically to the point now where we're at media on demand i mean it wasn't that long ago chachi when we think about it and the work that that deb has done I remember as just like, you know, in college or visiting my sister when she had first moved to New York, uh, also in the dance world there. Debbie, bring up your father and Martha mm -hmm. Graham. Uh, <laughs> my, my sister has a company devoted to the works of Isadora Duncan. And mm -hmm. I remember going to the Museum of Television and Radio before you could see these things, before there was an Internet. And the Beatles appearance on Ed Sullivan was the most requested item in that library. And uh, it was on you know, an index card. You had to bring it just like the research area of the Boston Public Library. And you could sit there at a carol and watch it on a, on a little monitor. And I did do that. Um, and that doesn't seem that long ago. And to think of now where uh, really with a push of a button, um, we, uh, we, we, can, we can see it and we can experience it. And, um, you know, we, we think of those kids and how spoiled they are where they can have that on demand. I don't know if it's necessarily any better for them, but it makes them understand media and the way that that, uh, that the world tells its stories. And yeah. um, so um, this is a great story for them to hear, certainly. Yeah, right. very nicely said. But, Deb, let me show you one of my many prized possessions, my Beatle collection. Uh, I've interviewed Paul many times, Ringo many times, George once, not John. But look at this from February 1964 Newsweek. Oh, isn't that beautiful? Signed to me by Paul and Ringo. Uh-huh. But you remember this magazine, right? Dave? I sure do. Pretty amazing. I have a copy, but not signed. So <laughs> it's beautiful. Well, well beautiful. Deb, we cannot thank you. Cherish enough. that. That's yeah. just oh, gorgeous. Do. Just I do. gorgeous. Yeah. I was lucky. Um, I got a bunch of autographs. Everyone but yeah. John, but but good for you that you uh, you've yeah. had you know you live in such a great it's life. Nice. God bless you. It's nice. Well, thank you, and thank you for inviting you. me onto your podcast. I've really enjoyed this. Well, we, we appreciate it, and I will connect you with Patty Gallo Stenman, and, uh, and uh, so uh, Debbie Gendler. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, and uh, enjoy yourself. And please be, be careful out there with this crazy you, world we have going on. You too. Okay. You too. God bless. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. So, Professor, what a great interview. We love Deb. She's awesome. Thank you.
Yeah, I I hadn't uh, I you know this this uh, produced more uh, uh, more riches and more gems than uh, I could even have predicted, Chachi. I mean, we know her story pretty well, but then when you know I hadn't really talked to anyone who, from that fan perspective, saw the Beatles quote unquote on tour in '64, '65, and '66. Really, their active years like that, right? Had a parlophone, please, please me, brought to her from England. It's amazing. It is amazing. It is amazing. So, ladies and gentlemen, we hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Get back to the Beatles. Uh, a spiritual leader, David Yaz. David, how's it going? You uh, you engineered this whole show, and uh, she's a pretty amazing woman. Uh, it's going great, Chach. Um, fantastic little nuggets from your guest. I agree. Uh, the only thing I want to know is um, <clears throat> I was on the set of uh, Saturday Night Live, in the audience, I should say, for Saturday Night Live, for the, fir- for the national television debut of Nick Jonas. So I want to know when my interview is, you know, all the memories of that fine moment. Okay, maybe, <laughs> maybe, a di- maybe for a different podcast. Uh, Professor, who's Nick <laughs> hey, that's Jonas? Be- uh, you don't know who Nick Jonas is, Judge? No, nah, I'm teasing. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I was teasing, too. All I've got <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay well, well i've got his romper room chachi <laughs> romper room you're on I was in the audience room? i was in i was in the audience for romper room yeah i could never get those tickets for um bozo the clown though so. <laughs> <laughs> okay everybody thank you professor david galan beatles instructor at suffolk university the oh there they are. <laughs> uh, david yes thank you for uh doing all this and uh, we appreciate you listening to get back to the beatles now remember the boston podcast network has all kinds of different podcasts that you can listen to at pod617.com or wherever you hear your podcasts. I want to thank our sponsor, Subaru of New England. And Professor, once again, thank you. David Yaz, thank you. Thank you. And we'll be back very soon with yet another episode of Get Back to the Beatles. Take care. Bye-bye. I'll pretend that I'm kissing the lips I am missing and Make sure to check for the latest episode of Get Back to the Beatles with Chachi LaPrette at pod617.com. The Boston Podcast Network.